Good morning, everyone. Uh, there are two readings this morning. The first is from Daniel chapter 7, uh, and the second is Matthew 28. From Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 through to 14. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. The throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And then from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. This is a little different today. It's our vision day as a church. Um, wonderful to see you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, steady us. Help us to love you with our beings. And please help us to have an expansive vision uh, which is not afraid to be courageous for you. Amen. All right, well, we've just heard the words of the Great Commission, Jesus' Great Commission to his disciples. Immense words, aren't they? Uh, the final words of Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus' last mandate to his disciples before he ascends into heaven, uh, words of incredible vision, go and make disciples of all nations, w words of astounding encouragement, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. My guess is that if you've been a Christian for a while, you have heard more than one sermon on these words before, particularly 
on vision days like this, and we can understand why, can't we? Here is our purpose, uh, the task belonging to Jesus' disciples until the end of the age. And it's usual for a preacher to unpack the command and then from that to create a vision statement for the church. Uh, this is something I've done. However, in my experience, vision statements are helpful for clarifying things but not for motivating for the long haul. You might be different to me, but this is my experience. Sentences tend to fade in our minds. And as followers of Jesus, the truth is we are not, our allegiance isn't to a sentence, but to Jesus Christ himself. That's why I want to focus today on what came before Jesus' great commission to his disciples. This is the bit we usually skip over because what motivated these disciples to give their lives to the Great Commission when Jesus did give his instructions was what came before. And that was a vision of Jesus. And their vision of Jesus, which at that moment was so glorious, it was so majestic, that when Jesus went and then commissioned him, well, it was the most obvious natural thing in the world for them to do what he said. In other words, they didn't have a purpose-driven vision where you go backwards from the purpose to the vision statement. They had a vision-driven purpose, the vision of Jesus himself, which drove their purpose. It's this vision of Jesus that I want us to focus on. Okay, the resurrection, this resurrection appearance was different to previous ones. First of all, both the angels and Jesus himself directed the disciples to go ahead into Galilee. There they would see him. Now, they'd already seen him. So what's the deal about going to Galilee, right? Why Galilee? Because that was, of course, the northernmost part of Israel, the land of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. They were the first of Israel's tribes to experience God's judgment when the Babylonians and the Assyrians came down from the north and wiped them out centuries before. But in everyone's mind, Galilee was a place synonymous with judgment, right? And that is why when Jesus first began his public ministry and started preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, he began in Galilee. Matthew chapter four, Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was said through the prophets, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned, that light being Jesus' preaching. And so now Jesus directs his disciples, having died for the world and risen again, he directs his disciples to return to the place where he first began preaching and given that it was seen in Jesus' minds as a, as, as a place which suffered, sorry, in people's minds as a place which suffered God's judgment, there was no better place than to begin proclaiming his victory over death than there. So Jesus appeared in Galilee and not just anywhere in Galilee, but on a mountain in Galilee. Now, that's significant. Think back. What other appearances in the Bible happened on a mountain? Can you think? Now, in the book of Exodus, we remember God appeared to Moses on the mountain. 
In 1 Kings, God appeared to Elijah on the mountain. Mountains were the highest places, weren't they? They were places where the earth was most likely to touch the heavens. And in the Bible, mountains were associated with what we call theophanies, which is appearances of God. Jesus told his disciples to go to the mountain. This raises the expectation that the re this resurrection appearance will be special. That is, they won't just be seeing their friend, their master, their teacher alive again. By going to the mountain, there is the expectation that they will see the one who is Lord of life and death. They will see God himself. This explains then their reaction. Because when they came to the mountain and they saw him, what was their immediate response? Worship. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Straight away. They couldn't do anything else but worship him. When you see the Lord, that is what you do. You worship. That is what we will do when we see him. When he appears in glory and majesty, as he said he will, we will all fall down and we will worship every one of us. We will drop in adoration. In fact, we're told every knee will bow, every tongue confess, every eye will see. Jesus is the Lord himself and we will acknowledge him as such. The fact that this is their first response of the disciples on seeing Jesus gives us a hint of how glorious that vision must have been. It's not just that he's alive, back from the dead, like Lazarus had been. Who they saw must have been the one who conquered death, the Lord of life beyond the grave. He's not just sent from God, the one they saw, like a prophet, a prophet sent from God. He is the one who actually embodies in himself the life and the power and the majesty and the glory of God. He is of God, so that they couldn't help but worship. Although, of course, not everyone, because did you see that next little bit that <laughs> we feel embarrassed about and like to skim over? Um, some doubted. Um, now, don't skim over it. This is the bit that unlocks the passage. Why do some doubt? Because they fear God. I have a lot of sympathy with these who they doubt. You see, only God deserves worship. That's the law in the Bible, right? You remember the first two commandments, don't you? You shall have no other God but me. You shall not bow down and worship any other idol, right? You only worship God. Worship is exclusively reserved for God. It is something only given to him. And these guys are Jewish monotheists, right? They're, they're Bible-believing people. And yet now they see Jesus, clearly human, clearly alive, but radiating God's power, radiating his glory, and, and they can understand, yes, well, I can understand why some of you guys are bowing down and worshiping, but their, their fear of God and their knowledge that worship is reserved for him alone makes some of them at that moment hesitate. And I can understand that. Because it is, is it really right to worship Jesus? Because to do so would mean something entirely new, which means that here we have a man who is God. 
And so they doubt. Now, in answer to their doubt, Jesus speaks the words of the Great Commission. These are words of assurance. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, what's he doing? He's picking up on the language of our first reading from Daniel chapter 7. In that vision, Daniel, 700 years before, has a vision of terrifying beasts which symbolize all the world's empires and powers. Terrifying. But then he has this awesome description of God, the ancient of days, who is seated on his throne in all his glory on the day of judgment and river of fire comes out from under the throne. And then you're told, one like the Son of Man, next one, was led into his presence. Um, and then he was given all authority, all, um, next one, thanks, all glory, authority, and sovereign power, and that we're also told peoples of every language would worship him, and that his would, would be a kingdom that would never be destroyed. Now, the fact that this human figure in Daniel chapter 7 is prophesied as the one who's going to be worshipped by every nation. That tells us that the Old Testament did predict the coming of a human one who would also be divine and also therefore worthy of worship. So when the disciples are on this mountain and some of them are doubting, is it right to worship Jesus. Jesus answers their doubts by drawing on the language of Daniel chapter 7. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Guys, please understand, I am that figure. I am the one like the Son of Man. It is right to worship me. My kingdom will never end. All the nations will one day bow down and worship me. And therefore, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. When you see the connection with Daniel 7, you understand that Jesus' great commission of his disciples to go to the nations is not something surprising. It is obvious. It is clear. He will be worshipped by the nations. He ha he's the one. Therefore, the nation should be told. And he's speaking to us. Sometimes we read Jesus' words, think he was just speaking to the apostles, but they apply to us. Matthew doesn't use the term apostle. Matthew uses the term disciple, which is what every follower of Jesus is. And this is an activity which will stretch beyond the lifetime of the apostles. It goes until the very end of the age. This is a word for us. What's our mandate? It's to see Jesus worshipped and glorified by an increasing number of diverse people all around the world. How? By making disciples of all nations, which in our case at least means taking this commission seriously for where we live in the hills. How does that happen? Through evangelism and discipleship. So in the Great Commission, it's evangelism baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Now, you need to understand, primarily, this isn't an instruction to wet people. The word for baptism, the root there, is to immerse. So to immerse people into the name, which in the Bible means the character, the character of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit. To immerse people into who God is means to tell people about God and to teach him 
This is evangelism. And then, as well as evangelism, it is also discipleship, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, the apostles. This is more than just getting up the courage to mention Jesus in a conversation or maybe just explaining the gospel once to someone and feeling like you've done your duty and can wash your hands. Uh, This is a long task, isn't it? It's to see people become Christians and then to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. Okay. Notice that embedded in what Jesus says is also the idea of multiplication. He speaks to his disciples, telling them to make disciples of others. But because who a disciple is, is someone who makes disciples of others, the disciples that you make will be people who then make disciples of others who make disciples of others who... So there's the idea of multiplication. Now, humanly speaking, of course, this is daunting. So how will we be motivated? Well, go back to the vision, the vision of Jesus on the mountain. Glorious, the Lord of life, the one who has paid for the sins of the world and has come through the one who will take everyone who believes in him there. Triumphant over the grave. This is the man from Daniel 7. I wanted to paint a vision of Jesus, the one the disciples had, because I want you to keep that vision in your mind because that will motivate you much more than any vision statement. That is who he is and that's who we live for. And added to that, of course, you've got the massively encouraging promise that when we do it, of course, Jesus says he's going to be personally with us to the very end of the age. And of course, he's talking about his spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's how Jesus is with us. This is massive insurance. It's a reason to pray expansively. It's a reason to plan to multiply. We're going to hear more about that in a sec, but let's pray. Father, thank you so much that Jesus Christ died and rose again and is worthy of worship because he is that son of man, that human divine figure uh, whose kingdom will never end and it will be massive and people from every nations will worship him. Thank you, Father, that we get swept up in this too and help us to take our part in it. In Jesus' name, amen.